How do you fundamentally put a footprint in the sand around who you are? How are people going to know you? You should be asking yourself, is my positioning in this world about my business and my leadership? You can develop that in what we're going to be talking about today. The title and the cover. Oh my God. Yeah. So important. Some guy had gone in the back of the room and just taken an ugly orange color and wrote, <laughs> never eat alone on it. And so that ended up being the cover <laughs> for never eat alone. Don't think of a book as this crazy Mount Everest thing that only special people do. Think of a book as your heartfelt ability to sit and be contemplative about what really matters to you, who you are, what do you want to project to the world. It's a forcing mechanism, an accountability mechanism to focus on your brand and what you have to say to the world. Keith, welcome to Moonshots. It's great to have you here, pal. Any conversation with you is a blessing. Thank you. Uh, let's jump into this conversation, which is for entrepreneurs, for CEOs, for thought leaders who've never written a book but want to write a book. Uh, our goal here is in service to them, teach them how do you write a New York Times bestseller? Maybe how do you write a number one New York Times bestseller? Each of us have written one of those. And the question of does it really actually matter? Um, so let's actually start with that. Do you think it matters that your book is a New York Times bestseller? Let me wind this back a second. Okay. I think it's a little different positioning. One is that I think it's important that everybody write their book. I don't care if you publish it, because what I'm about to suggest is that you writing your book is you putting a, a footprint mm -hmm. in the sand around your brand. What matters to you? What are you trying to tell the world? You, you talk about an MTP, yeah. right? I think everybody should manifest. And again, the way in which one, quote, writes a book is the same way as in which you develop your positioning, your thought leadership, your brand, right? So if any CEO out there, you should be asking yourself, is my positioning in this world about my business? Is my positioning around my leadership? Is my positioning around whatever? You can develop that in what we're going to be talking about today. So whether or not you're shooting for the New York Times list mm -hmm. or whether or not you want to see your book at, uh, on, the, on Amazon, it's kind of irrelevant because what we're really talking about is how do you fundamentally put a footprint in the sand around who you are? All right. So let's dive into all these parts, which is how do you decide what book you're going to write and yeah. then how do you write and then how do you get it published and then how do you promote it and how do you get on the, on the list and right. does that list really matter? And I think your point is right. Um, it doesn't matter if you're a number one New York Times. It might matter for you as an ego to be able to claim that. I mean, let's not take it away from me that I've gotten one. So yeah. I don't want well, to, you know, I got say number, that it doesn't got, matter at all. You have one too. Well, I got you just have I, it in partnership. Yeah, I got to number two twice, and then I had Tony Robbins as like you know the master promotional hey, engine of the world. What we're about to tell these folks is you use any leverage you can. Yeah. Right. So it doesn't matter. You've got a number one. I've got a number one. And has it changed our lives? Absolutely not. Yeah. At the, right? end, of the, at the end of the day, uh, you write a book for a number of reasons. Yeah. And let's let's talk about that, because I think it's important folks to realize. I mean, you said the first one, right, uh, developing and promoting your brand. How are people going to know you? Right. So for me, when I wrote Abundance with Stephen Kotler back in 2012 and got in the TED stage and gave that, that opening keynote, it really was a pivot moment for me, right? And I became Mr. Abundance and all of a sudden good news was cool. And then we'll talk about a second reason, not in this podcast, but later, but 
you don't make money on the book or the book advances. You make money on? You make money on speaking. Speaking, yeah. Right. And, and, and the tipping point for you, you know, Abundance was a big success. Yeah. But the TED Talk, like we should talk about that when we get to our, the second half of our work together today, which is going to be speaking. Yeah. But the TED Talk is instrumental too. It was, it yeah. was. And, and the value of that. And does it matter if you're on a TEDx talk or on the TED main stage? And we'll talk about that in our, our second podcast we're going to do, which is on how to build a speaking business. But let, yeah, I agree. Go, let's, go back let's to why, go do you write, back. why do you write a book? So if I'm talking to any of my clients, I uh, coach executive teams. Right. And a number of my clients, you know, I often ask them, I said, do you have a book in you? And I'd say half of them say yes, and the other half say not interested at all. Um, the ones that say yes, I put them through a simple exercise okay. because I'm curious why they have a book in them. It's interesting because some people have a book in them and it has nothing to do with their workplace. It's because they're a Christian and they believe in financial um, success for, for the underprivileged and they want to write a book about being a Christian and having financial success. Right. I get surprised sometimes by whatever somebody comes at me, what really matters to them. Just like when you're trying to design somebody's MTP. Sure. Right? But then there are others who are like, I have no interest at all. And when the ones who say I have no interest at all, I push them a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, how do you represent yourself to your employees? How do you represent yourself to the world? How do you represent yourself to your shareholders? Who are you? Yeah. What matters? Yeah. And I said, let's, let's think about writing a book. Now, a book to me starts with the simplest thing in the world, because most people see this Herculean effort of, you know, Mount Everest that they someday have to climb. No, you don't. You don't even have to get to base camp. All you got to do is, and what I always say is, go on a piece of paper and write 10 sentences that define for you what you have to teach the world or what you want the world to do differently. Just 10 things, mm -hmm. right? And try to make them in some order of flow, and what would those be? And then what you do is you write those 10 things and then show them to a few friends and talk about them, have a dinner about them. Sure. And then once you muse on that with somebody else, then go from 10 sentences to 10, 10 sections with three sentences. So sort of flesh it out a little flesh bit. Flesh it out a little yeah. bit more, three sentences. And then show that to a few friends and get a bunch of musings back. And then maybe you get to the stage where you write 10 paragraphs. By the time you've done that, you've started to structure both what you think you have to share with the world and what the world resonates with, or at least the people who have a sense of who you really are, yeah. what they resonate with. Once you get to that, I think you've got the bones of what is most important, which is starting to structure your, your, what you have to share in the world. I mean, at the end of the day, a book is moving someone through a sequence of thoughts and feelings. So they come out the other end understanding the point you wanted to make, right? And, and, and you and I, one of the things I think books fail to do, and this is something that I've lived my life on, I think if there's, a, if there's a core element of my brand that I'm starting to realize about myself, it's not whether I was the relationship guy with Never Eat Alone or the future of teams, you know, with competing in the new world of work and other things. I think at the core of my brand is something very different. It's high return practices. Hmm. I'll explain what I mean by that. I, I had a remember pocket coach. Yeah, I remember that, I was that, an investor that and lovely yeah, failure yeah, well, of six was, million dollars of loss. Great, it was a great idea. It was a great idea. And yeah. it still remains a great idea. And the idea was that there was extraordinary things we all needed to not just learn, but to do differently. 
Yes. So if you different habits, different habits, rituals, practices. And by the way, like Atomic Habits, it proved uh, amazing success, right? But my idea was, okay, if you read Good to Great, yeah, you would know what a great leader is like. But would you really know what to do? So my idea was, I was going to go and take all the great books. Originally, the book uh, was called uh, Pocket Coach, Mm -hmm. Um, and the idea was that I was going to take all the great books, turn them into practices. So that along with the book, you would get dosed practices on an ongoing basis. And what I found, interestingly enough, was that there were basically no practices in most books. Yeah. There were a lot of concepts. There were a lot of learning. There were a lot of inspiration. There's a lot of ideas, a lot of storytelling. But the what you fucking do day to day differently. Yeah. What are the practices and how do I? They weren't there. All of my books are practice based. Yeah. And that's just my brand, right? My brand, I think, if anything else, it's a yeah. highly practical, practice based. Well, for approach. those who don't know you fully, I mean, you began as a Fortune 500 executive. You were CMO at, at Starwood Hotels and Deloitte. Yeah. And then at Deloitte. And uh, today, you know, I view you as what Tony Robbins does for individuals, coaching individuals, you do for executive teams, right? You come and coach teams for high performance. Right. And there's a lot of practices, a lot of this is how you get to that end point. Yeah. And, and I agree. I mean, a, a book where I can learn something and it changes my behavior right. um, is, is really but that important. Doesn't, and I wouldn't say that. Be, yes, that's my brand. But yeah. there are others where you read a book and it, you're inspired. Or entertained. Entertained, right? So, so all of those are good. Um, I just want to suggest that the key to your success as you start to think about this is these are the questions you should be asking yourself. You should be asking yourself, is my brand what? And how does a person, when I, have in, when I have communicated on paper or on stage with an audience, what does that audience look like? So let's go into the basics. Yeah. Who am I speaking to? That's different. Yeah. You speak to entrepreneurs. Now, the overlap of that is that you also inspire and speak to Fortune 500 CEOs, but that's not your core audience. Yeah, right? I, I, my mission, my MTP, inspire and guide entrepreneurs to create a hopeful, compelling, and abundant future. I want to go back to why write a book. And and you said something uh, a little bit ago. I mean, first of all, we talked about what you said about creating, defining your brand, Yeah. right? Because if you have a book that really defines your brand, your, if your employees, and again, speaking to entrepreneurs, a, a great book can launch a company, right? A great book can launch you as an entrepreneur, as a CEO, can align your organization. Tony Shea, Delivering Happiness. And then Exponential Organizations that I recently wrote with Salim or EXO2. Um, It also can allow you to pivot, right? And this is something that you've used in your life. Yeah. So you and I were talking about this yesterday when we were having lunch. I like to use books to learn. Not to read and learn, but to write and learn. They so force you to learn. It's a forcing mechanism. Yeah. So, uh, you know, when, when I wrote my first book, Never Eat Alone, it was an accident. You know, it was, I always had a book in me. I mean, so we want to hear the funny little story. Yeah, I want to hear it. I want to why did you write that book? Yeah. So um, I always had a book in me. And remember, I had been the chief marketing officer of two companies and I thought my book- And pretty significant companies. Big companies. And I thought my book was going to be about marketing. Sure. And I came out to Los Angeles and I was an entrepreneur. I had left marketing because I wanted to be a CEO. I was working for Michael Milken and I was running one of the companies in his portfolio. And um, somebody came to me and said, uh, we would um, like to write an article about you 
on your success. You had such crazy success. You were a Fortune 500 executive by the time you were 30. Mm -hmm. and, and then you're now you're a CEO, blah, blah, blah. And so we wrote, they wrote an article about me and it was about my perspective. And this is very important for anybody thinking about um, writing your book. Again, when, when, this, when this journalist came to me and said, I wanna write an article about your success. I stopped and I didn't want the narrative to be run by him. Huh. I stopped and I said, give me 24 hours and I'm gonna write for you the 10 things that I think defined my success. Okay. And I delivered those to him 24 hours later after be thinking about them. And he called me back and he said, you've just written my article. Hmm. My article is gonna be those 10 things and we're just gonna go in more detail now, right? So the structure, I commanded my own narrative. Hmm. And it was about, really it was about things like deepening relationships with individuals, being authentic, being generous, all those things. Um, and then when I published that, when that article got published, somebody reached out to me and said, you should write a book on that. Now remember my head, I wanna be a CEO of a major company. I'm a marketer, that's where I am. And somebody comes along and says, you should write a book about this, this world of networking and, and career development, et cetera. And I said, no, I said, I don't wanna do that. That's not my brand. I'm a corporate guy, yeah. I'm gonna be a CEO. And they said, we'll give you a quarter of a million. And I'm like, I'll do it. <laughs> so it was. Uh, and we'll talk about advances and how much yeah. is real and so forth. You know, I had a not too dissimilar story on my first book. Um, uh, it was just after the XPRIZE, uh, no, the XPRIZE had, had reached some level of popularity, but had not been won yet. And I got, uh, I read an article that a guy, Stephen Kotler, Mm -hmm. uh, wrote about me. He wrote one in GQ and one in, um, uh, I think it was Wired at the time. And when I read this article, I was so enthralled by his writing, not what he said, but the way he wrote was so incredible. I did something unusual. I called him up and I said, Stephen, would you give me writing lessons? I want to learn how to write like you. And because I, the book I had in me was I wanted to write a book about space, right? I'd been a space cadet for 20 years. Yeah. And it was like, I'm going to write about the future of humanity and space and this and that. And um, so I took writing lessons. I wrote a book proposal on space, didn't go anyplace, mm -hmm. and I put it aside. And then uh, here comes 2009, and I am at Singularity University in the first year. And I'm having a conversation, I'll never forget, with Neil Jacob Stein and with uh, Ray Kurzweil, about the idea that technology was turning things that were scarce into abundance. Mm -hmm. And the, that word abundance just grabbed me. And I started thinking about that and it became so powerful inside me. I called up Stephen and I said, Stephen, you and I are writing a book together and it's gonna be called Abundance. Right. It was like that committed. And uh, lo and behold, I got a quarter million dollars advance that I split with Stephen and but abundance. It was very difficult to do yeah. coming out of the shoot on a first book for anybody. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so just to yeah, Stephen, manage expectations. Stephen, for who had people. been a writer, a successful writer, was getting like sixty k advances, and yeah. um, and but it was our partnership. And sometimes someone who's got a w yeah. wider reach and someone with writing skills, and we'll we'll talk about do you write with somebody on your well, own let's with actually a ghostwriter? I know that that's uh, probably in the sequence later, but sure. let's use this as a moment. Um, neither of us would have had the success we had in our first books 
if it wasn't for an extraordinary writing partner. Yes. I just want to note that. So there's two ways to think about this. One is if what you're writing your book for is to, is to document your positioning and to put a footprint in your brand and further explore it, fine. But if you're going to put things out to the world, there is a skill set called extraordinary writing, which yes. is rare. Yeah. And I would never have had Never Eat Alone as a success if it wasn't for Tal Ross. Who was, who was your? Who was my co-writer. Right. Um, and, and similarly with yeah. Abundance, you wouldn't have had the same if it wasn't for Steven. Yeah, I was I mean, an incredible storyteller. And right. you know, as good as ChatGPT is today, it just doesn't come close. Maybe, yeah. maybe GPT-5 or 6 will, will come close, but and we'll talk about that a little bit later So I just as well. think it's important to note that none of, neither of us believes that you do everything alone. Yeah. Building the right team, and we'll get to that later, but I just wanted to note how important it was. You don't have to think, I would imagine it would be daunting for most people to think of writing a book. You don't have to write the book. You have to be the quarterback. You have to be the leader of the book. And there's a whole set of assets that you'll be leveraging to make that happen, which we can talk about in a moment, but I want to get over that hurdle. Yeah, and and you can write with a co-author where you're both named as the authors. You yeah. can have a ghostwriter who comes in and interviews you and uh, writes the book in your voice. And, um, and just on that, yeah. I, I'm, I'm often I'm, I'm intrigued by your thought. So Tal and I had an extraordinary writing partnership for mm -hmm. Never Eat Alone, and um, by the time these days, I always make a habit of making sure that the person who's writing with me is on the cover. Yes, 100%. I, and the I, reason I do that is because I want them on Saturday night when they're trying to decide, do they, they have an extra glass of yes. wine <laughs> or do they turn to the book? Yeah. If they're, they're, yeah. They're, their name is gonna be on it just with mine, I think it's important. And I don't think, I don't think an author loses anything I, I lost by sharing no, I lost the nothing. cover. Yeah, and, and so Abundance was written in my voice um, I, you know, first person voice and so forth. And then Stephen and I had continued our partnership in our second book, Bold, and our yeah. third book, um, The Future's, uh, Future's Faster Than You Think. And those were jointly voiced books, right? Mm. And, uh, and at the end of the day, it's been incredible. You will, if you have a co-author, it's a very intimate relationship. We used to yeah. joke that we were each other's lovers, you know, in yeah. terms of, because we'd be up at five in the morning writing for two hours yeah. and, and, it's, you know, you go deep in that regard. We'll talk yeah. about, you know, writing styles. So why write a book, brand, build a speaking career. Learning put, and curiosity. Learning and curiosity. Um, uh, I think launching your business, you talked about yeah. speaking as a business, but you're right. Um, right now, uh, ironically, of all, I've written four books. Yeah. None of them are on the subject that I actually make my money from. I make my money coaching executive teams. Yeah. And so I am now cultivating the 20 years of work in a new book around high-performing executive teams. And that book will be out next year. And it, I, it's gonna be important for the business that I have, mm -hmm. which I have had for years, um, to take that business to scale. So is there any other reasons you write a book? Um, you know, like, like I said, there are, there are people who have a book in them about something meaningful yeah, I think in the world, right? I, I, when abundance came to mind, it's like it was bursting from me. Yeah. It was like I, I had no important. I had no other choice. I had to yeah. write that book. It was like something that was new yeah. and true. And, you know, and you sort of using Peter Thiel's 
you know, what's your thesis that, uh, uh, that you think is absolutely true and no one else agrees with, when you feel that sort of, um, that feeling, getting it out in a book uh, can be a very powerful means. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for me, I love your process and I agree with it. You know, when I start sitting down to write a book, it is outlining the argument flow in terms mm -hmm. of the chapters in, one of the things that I think is very important in books is storytelling. Yeah, um, I think that books that are really engaging, we as humans, you know, we receive and we communicate information in terms of stories. Yeah, and so when you open a chapter and it is a compelling story about an individual, and for you know, it's very different than just a bunch of data. Yeah. Yeah, I, I have um, asked, I have helped my, many of my friends write their books. Yeah. Uh, Peter Guber is a dear friend of mine. And when I remember one time sitting out on my balcony for a dinner party and Peter Guber, who mostly known these days as one of the owners of the Warriors, who really helped turn that franchise around, uh, the Dodgers helped turn that franchise around, but also a, a, uh, an Oscar winning um, movie producer. Um, Peter and I were sitting and I asked him, I said, what is your great dream? What's next? Hmm. And he said, you know, I have made a legacy in my product that people will always remember some of the movies that got Oscars. He said, but there's something underneath it that I want to leave as a real legacy, which is helping the world tell better stories. Mm -hmm. And so I helped coach him through the process of writing his book on storytelling. Hmm. Um, and you know, what's, from his perspective, it was legacy. He was writing a book for legacy. Sure. And, and he did. You know, we helped get that to be a number one New York Times bestselling book. Peter doesn't lose in anything, whether it's yeah. a pennant, you know, an Oscar, or a number one New York Times bestselling Another book. Another reason to write a book is to tell your side of the story. Ooh. Right? Yeah. So Paul Allen writes The Idea Man, which is his side of the, the Bill Gates Paul yeah. Allen, Microsoft founding, right? Yeah. And so that's interesting. I think uh, writing a wrong or telling your side, because you know, a lot of times the person who is the most vocal stories out there, and a book is a way to provide a consolidated yeah. approach to that data backed yeah. approach. So, so now that we have some, hopefully, what we've done at this stage is we've helped our listeners awaken to the idea that maybe they should have a book in them. Yeah, I right? think everybody can have a book. Right. What does it take? And how do you how do you do what kind of commitment? Mm -hmm. So I you know I was never a good writer in high school uh, or in college. My love of writing actually developed later in life, and I actually love writing. I get up I I, I like am excited when I get my wake up before my alarm because I have extra time to write in the morning, and I write almost every single morning, first thing in the morning wow. where I'm super super Still. clear. Still. Wow. today and it's either writing a blog mm -hmm. um or writing and i'm you know i'm always working on multiple books so right now uh we just published uh exo2 uh peter's longevity practice is coming out next and then with cheo uh rose washington uh who my head of research we're going to be putting out a book uh, which is the follow-on to abundance and then there's a book on mindsets after that and so it's just it's a I've turned it into a day-to-day -day activity and I'll write for an hour. Uh, Stephen Kotler once taught me that if you can write a single finished page per day, 
that would put you at the most productive, yeah. you know, book writers out there. So that's, that's a book not, a year. So that's not my process. What do you do? Yeah. Um, I need designated sitting time to write my books, to write anything. So I have a writing day. So my Fridays, it took me a long time to block off my Fridays. And mm -hmm. today is a Friday and I'm doing this for you. Thank you. Um, and also uh, for our listeners. Right. And yeah. for our, I'm doing this for you. Yeah, actually, I'm doing this for you. Um, <laughs> But the, the Fridays are my writing days. Yeah. So my team knows that they're not allowed to block my Fridays for anything other than my writing. Yeah. And it's, it's the, if I can't, I gotta get into a writing groove. I can't just go grab an hour to write. Yeah. My head's not there. Yeah. And I got, maybe, maybe I've got more monkey mind than you do, but I've gotta get quiet, in the groove, focused and ready to really think mm -hmm. and iterate. Um, that's just me. I totally love the idea of, you know, doing it uh, for an hour every day. And if that works for you, that's great. Yeah. Um, but I, I block the time. The other thing that I think is really but you, important. But can I ask you, when you were an undergrad at Harvard, you were writing then? Yeah. So uh, I was an undergrad at Yale. Uh, yeah, I'm How sorry. dare you, right? Huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm, thinking no. of, I'm thinking of Eric Poulier, was, who was at Harvard. I was Harvard Business School. Oh, Harvard Business School, um, okay. But no, when I was, yeah, I've, it's interesting, um, maybe a little bit vulnerable revealing. So I grew up kind of thinking I was smart until I went to Yale. And then everybody there, because I had not gone to the kind of schools that all these kids had, because I wasn't literate and I hadn't been, you know, steeped in the literature, mm -hmm. I didn't feel smart. And as a result, it really stymied me a bit. I didn't think I was smart enough. Mm. Um, and it took me a while to realize, regain again, my confidence in my intellect um, because I was, I was smart in a different way. That's shocking to me since I've never seen any aspect other than the brilliant no, was, intellectual. Well, you know, the, you see it and I guess it was always there, but I, but when you've got a bunch of people, the, these erudite philosophers who have read all of Kant and Nietzsche and I didn't, I hadn't done that, yeah. you know, I felt, I felt minuscule. Mm -hmm. um, so it did set me back. But when I graduated from Yale, I got into business and I started writing about the things I cared about. I started writing manuals in manufacturing for continuous process improvement down at the plant front line. Mm -hmm. So I wrote my first book right out of Yale, mm -hmm. uh, working at a manufacturing company about worker uh, empowerment. Mm -hmm. So soon as I started getting practical, my writing started to show up. And you enjoyed it? I loved it. Right. I loved it. I re and that's when I knew I had a book in me and I knew that my intellect wasn't this erudite stuff. It was very practical in nature. And I wanted to crack the code of continuous process engineering of changing the way the world works. That's always been my core. So here's the question of the times, of course, is the use of chat GPT in writing, mm. right? So, uh, it's not cheating. I think it's ridiculous. No, to no I'm not calling it cheat, but no, how, but I, mean, I think a lot of people, yeah have been saying that and well, I just don't get I, it. I think, listen, if you say to ChatGPT, write me a book on this topic and it spits out, you know, uh, a you, you probably can get it to write you an outline and then say, please flesh out chapter one for me and then flesh it out again and you can probably get a book written. Mm -hmm. um, and what's wrong with that? Well, a question is, is it your thoughts versus uh, the consumed thoughts of the internet? But what's, but what's wrong with that? If, if the intention is to, to be bring, a service yeah. to a community, 
you know, you and I had played the other day with some really interesting prompting theories. Mm -hmm. Prompting is a clever thing to do. Sure. And if you get really clever at sequentially asking better and better prompts, which get ChatGPT to write a better and better book or a better and better whatever. Um, and look, maybe your point is, and you should say, co-authored by ChatGPT. I, I think, I think at, a min, at a minimum, you yeah, should you should great. disclose that. Information. I have no problem with that. I mean, right? for me right now, and I've seen I've seen long form content generated by ChatGPT, and it was missing. Now, but that's another thing, which is if you create a book with ChatGPT yeah. and it gets out there, you have to suffer the consequences of a mediocre piece that hasn't been fully fleshed out with your yeah. own ideas, right? But at the same time, one of the challenges people have is staring at a blank page. Which is a great and, way to start. And yeah. I find ChatGPT as a mechanism to say, okay, uh, you know, give me ideas. You know what you're gonna write about in this chapter conceptually. And you know, if you can outline like you did, here's the key points I wanna make. Can you provide some yeah. content on top of it? It can break a logjam so, and give you an ability to so like, get I, I, started. I want to take you and the and the and the viewers into a very terrified moment I had uh, less than a few months ago, where I hadn't been fully immersed in the prompting uh, within ChatGPT. I knew it was there. I hadn't had time to really play with it, and here I was, right in the middle of my my major book, my tome, my legacy of high-performing teams. This yeah. is going to be the most important book that I've written, perhaps aside from Never Eat Alone. Thus far. Thus far. Um, I'll get many, many more. Right? <laughs> you do. Buddy. And we'll talk about the pivots. But I got scared shitless because I sat there and I thought, wait a second. I didn't ask ChatGPT what it has to think about this book that I have now structured and formalized and ready to ship. What if ChatGBT could make it fundamentally better? Yeah. I'm, I'm feeling castrated by the fact that I didn't co-author it with ChatGBT. Mm. And it scared the shit out of me mm -hmm. because I thought, damn, I've done, it just, I, I've done an injustice to the world to publishing my tome without the universe of all writing in it as with my partner of ChatGBT. Fascinating. And, and so I actually, I, I put a pause in the book. Yeah. I said, we're not publishing the book. We're going through a rewriting process that will think about, you know, remember I was, and here's something I did the other day. I just said, I've always, again, I'm, I'm all about high-performing teams. I always thought, well, what would it be if I had actually read all the great works of philosophy, not mm. philosophy, but of psychology, Freud's great works, et cetera. So I started asking ChatGBT, what does Freud have to say about high-performing executive teams? And? And it gave me some very interesting stuff. It, it and I said, what does Young have to think about right. high-performing executive teams? And then I asked more questions and more questions. And it made me realize there is a body of knowledge that I can give to my readers yeah. that was not there before. The way I think about it is as a writer, as an entrepreneur, as an executive, you only know how to think the way you know how to think. Yeah. And having ChatGPT in the conversation it uh, can give you massively different perspectives. And especially if you're prompted properly and saying, you know, take on the mantle of Freud. Uh, I'm an author trying to write about this. Yeah. How would Freud look at it? And then the ability to prompt it and say, make it more compelling, make it more data-driven, make it more whatever. I had played with this idea by talking to a bunch of shrinks over the last five years about their perspective on executive Anything? teams. 
Barely. Barely. And in three hours, yeah. I got this deluge. I, and then I started doing the same thing. Like I chased after the, the woman who was the coach for the women's soccer team that won the nationals. I got to sit with Coach K asking him questions. So now then I did a whole separate thing about, you know, successful uh, sports teams coaches. Right. So all of this, again, is is powerful. Now, the, the question you were asking is um, chat GBT and book writing. I, I think they're they're going to be massively integrated. Yeah. So the question. So listen, at the end of the day, if there are, you know, 10x or 100x more books going out into the market because it's easier. Right. Because an individual can now use AI hmm. to write their book. The question becomes what distinguishes your book? Um, and it's, is it's, is it's the future brand. of is the future of, of books going to be this you know hard cover or soft cover or digital? Um, and aren't those aren't those two different questions? Right, they, they are. They are because and I think at the core, how you differentiate your book from other books. Obviously, the quality is going to be important. Both Abundance and Never Eat Alone were extraordinary books. And they had viral appeal such that when somebody read them, they wanted to pass them along. Yeah, I mean, the number of times I've heard, and I'm sure you have, I bought 100 copies and gave exactly. it out to all my I, teams. All I've been doing is getting yeah. your book out, and I've been doing yeah. it for 20 yeah. years. Yeah. So there's that. you got to write a great book. And, yeah. and we know that ChatGPT will write a mediocre book. You've got to write a, a, a great book. Right. But then the next question is the, the, the brand. Peter Diamandis has how many followers? Keith has how many followers? Yeah. As a result, our books get seeded into the world in a different way. Yeah. So if you really want your book to differentiate, then you need to build a media company. And you and I were talking about this the other day. You know, you need to build a media company around who you are. Now your media, if you want your book to inspire your employees, which is perfectly fine. And a great purpose for a book. And a great purpose for a book. Then you probably don't need a media company. Yeah. If you want your book to have ripple effects around the world and change a state of the universe, then you probably need a media company associated with it. Yeah. You know, I'm super passionate about longevity and health span and how do you add 10, 20 healthy years onto your life? One of the most underappreciated elements is the quality of your sleep. And there's something that changed the quality of my sleep. And this episode is brought to you by that product. It's called Eight Sleep. If you're like me, you probably didn't know that temperature plays a crucial role in the quality of your sleep. Those mornings when you wake up feeling like you barely slept, yeah, temperature is often the culprit. Traditional mattresses trap heat, but your body needs to cool down during sleep and stay cool through the evening and then heat up in the morning. Enter the pod cover by Eight Sleep. It's the perfect solution to the problem. It fits on any bed, adjusts the temperature on each side of the bed based upon your individual needs. You know, I've been using pod cover and it's a game changer. I'm a big believer in using technology to improve life and Eight Sleep has done that for me. And it's not just about temperature control. With the pod's sleep and health tracking, I get personalized sleep reports every morning. It's like having a personal sleep coach so you know when you eat or drink or go to sleep too late, how it impacts your sleep. So why not experience sleep like never before? Visit www.8sleep.com, that's E-I-G-H-T-S-L-E-E-P.com slash moonshots, and you'll save 150 bucks on the pod cover by 8sleep. I hope you do it. It's transformed my sleep and will for you as well. Now back to the episode. 
Let's dive into a few of the other uh, fun subjects. We talked about writing process. I'm every day, you're on Fridays. Um, I used to, one of the things I loved in writing with Stephen Kotler is the back and forth, right? I would write a chapter and he would write a chapter. We'd exchange them and edit them. And then the thing I found really uh, powerful was we'd get on, back then it was uh, Skype we would get on with every morning and we'd read the chapter out loud. Mm -hmm. And reading mm -hmm. the chapter out loud really is for me the way to take a chapter to finish because it's got to sound compelling and not boring to you. And when you read it, it's yeah. very different when you when you speak it. So, so, so I think we have again we have a very different way. Yeah, you seem to write from the beginning with an expectation that what you're writing is somewhere in the direction of final. I do not. And you explore. I write in a radically agile process. So I expect my chapters to be rewritten 20 times, mm. significantly rewritten 20 times. So first thing, as I said, I did is remember, so think about how I'm writing books. I'm writing 10 sentences to 10 paragraphs, right? And I'm iterative, iterative. And every one of those is a, is a turn. Sure. Once you get to a chapter and you've got the first paragraph, now it's, th for me, it's throw up on the page mm. anything you would want free form, free form writing, yeah. anything you'd want to think about in this. Then what I do, because I'm not expected to be the expert in writing where you, it's the difference between you and me. You went out and said, teach me how to write. Mm -hmm. I went out and I said, tall, write this, mm -hmm. right? So I did, I abdicated the, the need to be the writer. I have a writing partner. So my job was to throw the stuff on the page that I think were, was important and then recognize that my writing partner knew how to read that and restructure it. So that's what the way I do it. I, it. I, and I think that's what Tony Robbins does too. You're yeah, saying so he when, speaks to it. He's going to yeah, write it. Yeah. When Tony and I wrote uh, Life Force, um, it was an unusual process to say the least. I uh, and uh, we had like five or six authors on the book. Yeah. Right. And it was, um, I, I wrote my own chapters and rewriting, but Tony works with a team of writers that will uh, shape what he says and put into content. Let's talk about um, how you go from your idea uh, to getting a publisher and a, and, a, and a publishing deal. So did you have a literary agent when you went out with your books? I have. I've had um, three literary agents mm -hmm. um, over my four book trajectory. Okay. And my first one was exceptional. One of the things that I look for in an agent is somebody who cares about the content. Mm -hmm. And my agent, my agent number one and my agent number three have all been richly interested in the content and hands in the content. Mm -hmm. In fact, my first agent sat with Tall and I uh, for many days in wow. his office in New York and helped combat and structure. You remember that name? I don't remember okay. my first agent. Uh, I don't think he's in the business any longer. Yeah. But I do I, remember the other ones. Yeah, I had uh, John Brockman uh, as my yeah, John's agent. John's great. John's amazing. Um, his son, Max Brockman, has taken over Brockman Inc. at this point. Yeah. And I met him at TED, and he approached me one day. He says, when you're ready for your book, contact me. Yeah. And then uh, I did on oh, Abundance. It's interesting, right? So uh, an agent will typically take a fixed percentage of the deal. And so they're motivated and that percentage can be like 10, 15%. Oh, higher, I think. 20%? 20, 25. Yeah. Okay. 
um, and they're motivated to get the maximum advance from a, a publisher. Now, interestingly, for a fiction book, if you're can, any, can yeah. I? Yeah, please. Can, uh, let me debate that. So my agent now, mm-hmm. so my three agents, the first agent was a small single shingle guy. Yeah. And, um, and he really got in and, and every loan wouldn't be successful without him. Got it. Um, we ended up not needing an agent because we went with the first person who helped us bird the book. Somebody who just read the article and said, you should write a book. Then we went and got an agent. We shopped it around, but we came back to the person who discovered me, so to speak. Sure. Then what I decided to do is I wanted a named agent after that. I thought I'm a big shot now. <laughs> so I went to William Morris agency, which ah. is now William Morris Endeavor. Yeah. And I got one of these big named agents. And I remember um, Ari Emanuel calling me when we hit number one New York Times bestseller. I'd never, I didn't know who he was. I didn't know his, I'm not an entertainment guy. He's like, who's got your back, baby? I'm like, who is this? He's like, Google me, motherfucker. What do you mean, who is this? He literally said that. I know, I, I know Ari and it's like my experience with Ari is being in his office, having a conversation and him having a conversation on two different phones at the same time. I'll call you right back. And I just like- For those who don't know Ari Emanuel, yes. he's the guy who, was the Ari in the series Entourage. Yes. Yeah. yeah anyway, very but, cool. but what I found out about that whole thing, interestingly enough, was that person, that person didn't care about my book. Yeah. That person it was, was all about maximizing, maximizing money. the income for the book. And, and, and frankly, because it, I was a business book and business hadn't gotten cool on, there was no Netflix, et cetera. There was no tale. There was no movie for never eat alone, you know, right. that, that sort of thing. So you know, I think today, by the way, there could be, I think there's a, there's a genre now emerging, like you see Brene Brown has her TV series and yep. all that kind of stuff. But anyway, but today, Esmond Harmsworth, he is a gem. He works in the detail of the content with us. He, and, and what I was going to say is he, in my last book, he agreed, we went with Harvard business school as a publisher. Mm-hmm. And this is important. Most publishers don't matter. Harvard business school does. Mm-hmm. Harvard Business School has a category around the world that if your book is published on Harvard Business Review, Harvard Business School, people know that it has had peer review, it's had some degree of academic pressure to it. And as a result, there are, there are business people in China and Vietnam who will go to their catalog and use their book. And as a result, speaking engagements mm-hmm. go up on an international basis because you've got a Harvard Business School book. So I just wanted to put that okay. out there. Um, Esmond took uh, probably a quarter of a million dollars less on that book because he knew long-term it was better for me to have a Harvard Business School book. As compared to if, uh, if Simon and Schuster with, exactly. or, right? Yeah. So a few, a few data points here. So a literary agent is not necessary, but if, a, if you've got a, a great literary agent, they will maximize your income potential by and so what what john brockman would do is he would have an auction so their proposal i was amazed so if you're writing a fiction book you typically have to write the entire book and turn in a complete manuscript yeah. on a fiction book on a non-fiction book you write a book proposal. um you write a book proposal and a book proposal is typically an outline of you know each of the chapters what it's going to mean and and how you're going to market it and it may or may not include a chapter. Two. It should include mine, two chapters. Well, did, these days you don't, but mine, abundance did. Yeah, with no abundance did not. Did not. Did not. Did not. not even did not want a chapter. Interesting. He and and so That's he surprising. went out to bid, uh, and Simon and sister won the bid for two hundred forty thousand dollars, which was like wow, it was like amazing amount of money for me back then, and um, 
and by the way, when people hear about your advance, just to be clear, that number 240,000 is split over three payments, right? So you get a third upfront before you start writing, a third when you deliver the manuscript, and a third when the soft cover comes out. So it's not all upfront. That was my deal. I don't know. Yeah, they're all different. I mean, it most of the time it's a third, a third, a third, and a third third has something to do with the success of the book Mm. um, or some delivery of some aspect of the book. But let me go back. I think what's important for our um, listeners is number one, if you if you want your book to be a big success out in the world, having an agent is one path. And we'll talk about another path, which is self-publishing. Yeah. But having an agent is one path. What it, and But please make sure that you find an agent that you love and they love you and they love your ideas. They love they what, you're, get involved what you're talking in, about. And they want they get their hands dirty. That's my big recommendation. Mm-hmm. The next piece then is what is a book proposal? You should write a book proposal, which is you write the introduction, which is telling somebody what the book's all about. And again, in a sense, that's the first chapter. Um, you write about the book. And then you write a structured outline of the book with you know half a page per. Mm-hmm. Um, now that's one version of it, and and I've often been told that you need one or two full chapters because they don't know if you're a good writer. They don't know if yeah. And maybe know, in my case, you, you had know, Steve Kotler. Stephen Kotler was a, a known writer, right? And I was a known yeah. marketer, promoter, entrepreneur. They want to see right? that you could structure a chapter that's pretty good, right? So they want to see yeah. that on paper, and that's what you're selling. What a lot of people think they have to do is they have to go out and, and write a book and then sell a book. Yeah. Only in fiction do you do that. Yeah. In this case, uh, fiction or a biography. I suspect yes. a biography, yes. I you might want to write the book. Yeah. But in the case of a, a book proposal, so that's your next step is write your book proposal. And your, edit, your agent will bust their ass to make sure it's a good proposal. My agent has rewritten my book proposals. So me and my co-writer- Which is wrote, how they earn their money. That's how they earn their money. That's, and then what they have that you don't is they have the network of the 10 people that they're gonna go pitch your book to. Yeah. You do not know the 10 publishers that would buy your book tomorrow. They do. And so that's the idea that they're out pitching your book to people that they know who they are. So you're gonna sell a book with certain rights. And uh, one of the things to think about is there's audible rights there's the uh you know the uh, spoken book and there's international rights and when you sell when you sell your book to a publisher they may say we want u.s rights only we want global rights usually try to get it all they do um and i've in both ways sold it just u.s rights and then had bids for rights around the world uh in translations right Uh, so like again this is where your agent coaches you yeah, and the agents incentivized to maximize your your income. Uh, it was always fun to get like, oh, here's another language of like you know, abundance and I, like yeah, yeah exactly, exactly and all these languages. Yeah. Um, so you write the proposal, you submit it. Um, again, you know whether you're going with a known publisher or a, a press or Amazon entered the business and disrupted the business in some interesting ways. They're now buying. So Leah, let's talk about that. So Please. the publisher piece is first. You, I'm sorry, agent and going direct to a normal publisher, that's there. Why do you want to do that? Well, you want to do that if you think you can get an advance, which allows you to pay for your writing partner, which allows you to pay for your marketing, right? And you also want to do it similar to why you, some, some entrepreneurs want to bring investors, you want accountability. You want to have a third party giving you some pressure, 
you know, they've invested in your book, so they're going to be expecting shit back from you. And you also might want to do it because there's a group of people coaching you, just like an like if you bring in an investor, your investors are now your coaches because they put money in you and they're going to tell you, you know, what they expect from you. So there's a lot of reasons to do still traditional publishing, but every author knows that it's a very challenging and vacuous process in many ways. The publisher does not do much for Can you. we put a giant exclamation point on this? Yeah. And you think the publisher is going to promote the book and you know create press and really drive sales. And in the final result, they don't. They, they do their best. They, they do, but they have and a they, thousand books. They have books a thousand every, books, yeah. etc. So you, you are going to drive your... The reason success. people love yeah. Farazi is because when I came out with Never Eat a, with Who's Got Your Back, yeah. the reason it was number one New York Times bestseller was I had a successful book. They gave, you know, 240,000. I think they gave, they gave me close to a million for my yeah. second book because yeah. off the back of the first one, they're expecting this, you know, this go, go to the next level. Um, and they give you a year to do it, yeah. right? The first book, how long did it take? Well, my first book took me 35 years to write because okay. it, was, it was the book about my life. It, it took, Abundance took about 18 months to write. Uh, the Futurist uh, Bowl took about a year and the Futurist Faster about a year. But it's interesting, once you turn in your book, then it's a year. It's That's another the other year. problem with going with a traditional it's publisher. An, so, I mean, don't think you're going to get it published the next month. It's, That's the big problem. Yeah. If you, like, I'm worried about my team's book because for the sake of my business and where I'm going right now with scaling my business, I want my team's book in the market now. Yeah. And I know that the team's book is going to take, once I'm done with it, it's going to take another fucking year. If you go with a publisher if versus self-publish, right? right? Which is the next... So let's equation. talk about self-publishing. So, but um, you know more about than I do. Yeah, so just to be clear, uh, uh, I went with Simon and Sister for the first four books. Uh, the fourth one was Life Force with Tony. And we got a multi-million dollar advance. It was huge. And uh, I didn't pocket a dime of it either to Tony. That money was spent on writers. It was spent on promoting the book uh, significantly. Yeah. And we donated millions of dollars to a health and longevity research. Mm -hmm. So it was great. I loved it. Um, the book we I just published with Salim, Exponential Organizations 2.0, we decided to self-publish. Mm -hmm. um, and how was the, the process? The, the technology is a lot better. So there's a gentleman by the name of Carrie uh, uh, Oberbrunner who runs a company called Igniting Souls. And he is a complete turnkey self-publication. Uh, so he has writers, promoters, translators, everything on staff, mm -hmm. and it's just a lot faster. And so, uh, and does he does he get distribution in independents and bookstores as well as on Amazon? Uh, he does to some degree, not as much as a publisher would, and also he does have international. Uh, outreach and so forth. Probably but, not but as much the, as a publisher. Not a, but much, yeah. but so at the end of the day, it is a fixed price with him. And all revenues from the book come Back to, to the authors. Yeah, right. So that's the And by the, the way, when you get in advance, when you get in advance a quarter million dollars or a million dollars. You got to earn that up. You, so let's you explain have to, that. You math. have to sell a million dollars of profits. Which the, almost no books do. Yeah. Very few books Earn their advance. Earn their advance. Did uh, did uh, abundance? Yeah, yeah. abundance. So did, all, all the books have so far. Yeah, and so did so did mine. The 
the, but that's a big deal. And then you don't have to give the advance back. That's right. important to know. It's like you get a quarter of a million, you're pocketing that, and that's the bet that the publisher has made on you. And if you don't sell a quarter of a million, when, when you say you don't have to sell a quarter of a million dollars worth of books, you're getting 15, 20% of a book. Most, I forget the math. At most. Right? When a, so, when a book sells for twenty dollars, five bucks, yeah, or whatever, like twenty dollars, right? You get a nickel. I mean, it's twenty five really cents, something ridiculously small, amount of money. small, right? Right, and that's what gets credited to your advance, right? The piece, the piece that you got, not not the twenty, not the twenty five bucks, but the piece that you got, yes, gets credited to your advance. So you have to sell exponentially that many books so, so to like earn a up quarter, your advance. Quarter million books to crazy. earn back the quarter million dollars of right, advance, right? right? Right, it's crazy, and right. so um, the. The, the challenge, I think, you know, so the math on that is a little bit weird. And then you get you get spiffs for international publication, but you don't get advances on you don't get it's royalties on this. Like if you if you, every time your book gets published in Vietnam, you mm -hmm. get five thousand bucks. OK, I it's get, a one time get, thing. It, it's an, a, a, they buy the rights. They buy the country. rights and they buy them outright. Yeah. And yeah. that goes to you yeah. um, as cash in your account yeah. somehow. But that, that's why you see that's all you see. You yeah. don't get the tail. Yeah. Now, and, and most books don't have tail. Yeah. You know, most books don't have tail. Um, the the self-publishing is very interesting because to your point, you're paying a one-time fee of X tens of thousands of dollars to this person. Yes. And every bit of the book that you sell, you set the price 20K, 20, 20 bucks, 25 bucks. That's all coming to you. Yeah. I'll tell you the thing I love most isn't that. Yeah. It's the speed. Yeah, I get this. And, and when I'm writing about exponential technologies and, and entrepreneurs, I can't publish this thing. It's a year out of date is yeah, like that's, ridiculous. That's look, you and I both take our full advance and we pour it back into marketing and then some. Yes. Right. You and I pour it back into writing partners, research and then some. But there are some people that are watching this that could think of this as an income stream. It can. And, 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 and if you do self-publishing, you could probably do a better business that way, particularly if you built your media company. Yeah. And that's the point, which is if you go self-publishing, you're getting nothing from the publisher. So we, 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 we don't give the publishers too much credit for doing a ton, but they do some. Mm -hmm. Now it's all on you, right? It's all on you if you self-publish. Yeah. You have an extraordinary book list. You have an extraordinary presence. You snap your fingers and your team lines up 20 of the most important podcasts that you're going to go hawk your book on. And as a result, it sells. I just want to make sure that we're balancing for folks who are watching who don't have a media business. Yeah, the books don't sell themselves. You have to you sell them. You have to sell every book. Yeah, yeah. It becomes, it's packaged. Now, which I want to talk about putting your marketing plan together for your book. I, I have a, a good old school from back in the, you know, in the, in the time when I published my book, a binder mm -hmm. with tabs. And here's a tab on podcasting. Here's a tab on um yes you know etc yeah right doing your book we could probably do an entire podcast just on the book marketing plan. absolutely that's an entire thing and and it's critically important i'm going to hit a couple of other things here yeah. uh the title and the cover oh my god yeah so important it is and battles and battles and battles oh yeah i, so, I literally the only time i lost my cool in never eat alone was um was over the cover of never eat alone mm-hmm um, a funny story. So Never Eat Alone comes out, the book's done. So here's the thing, make sure that you write in your, um, in your contract. In your, yes, you have control. You have control. 
Yeah. Because most of the time you do not. There's yeah. a lot of times in the book contract, the publisher owns the control. Yeah. I didn't realize international covers are different. Are, are different and, and they're, they're controlled by the local. They're yes. not there there are publishing, <laughs> there are title, there are book covers out there that look like crap. And I have nothing I can do about it. The yes. English book title for Never Eat Alone, I hate. Yeah. Um, so the book cover was a guy's hand with a business card <laughs> on on top of a white plate as if like I'm handing you a business card at lunch. Now, you laugh because you know that that couldn't be further from who I am and what I wanted. Like, I looked at that and I- It should have been a credit card. <laughs> I flipped the fuck out. I was like, are you kidding me? That is transactional networking smarmy bullshit. I'm all about authentic, generous relationships that are life-changing for both parties. Oh and I God. said, bullshit. And so I, I, puffed and puffed and said no and said no and said no. And the publisher got so pissed at me that they said, well, fuck you, this is supposed to be out tomorrow. I'm like, I said, I'm not gonna promote it because I, I didn't have any rights. Yeah, I didn't have any rights. They could do it if I, and I said, fine, then I'm not gonna promote it. I said, you wanna fucking have rights over my book cover? I'm not promoting it, <laughs> fuck you. And, and so they said, well, fuck you, here's your book cover. Some guy had gone in the back of the room and just taken an ugly orange color and wrote, never eat alone on it. And they said, fuck you here. And I'm like, good, it's done. It's better than that other thing. And so that ended up being the cover of never eat alone. That's hilarious. Yeah. So I, I, I basically, um, I fight over or spend countless hours on the book title and then on the imagery on it because it's like, yeah. It's like if it's you think about when it's you know the movie poster is the same example, right? You've got like yeah. one image and like one statement to capture people's yeah. attention. Yeah. Um, and it's important. One of the things I would do is do A/B testing by Google Ads uh, of different book names and covers yeah, and sure. see what people would would click on. But to your point, the reason we both care goes back to the very beginning of our talk. It's, it's your brand. It's yes. It's, it's who you are. It's yeah. how you represent your heart, yourself your in the world. Yeah, yeah. If, it, if it really is a, a book that is meant to represent you, every aspect has to represent you. Um, you know, uh, let's talk about a little about the marketing. So the uh, to get to a New York Times bestseller list, I'm gonna give some numbers here that my team researched. So uh -huh. right now, uh, to get onto the New York Times bestseller list, not to get to number one, uh, is you have to sell between 5,000 and 10,000 books in your first week. That's the current rough number. I would be surprised that that's enough. You, okay, but it's on just on the list, right? And so there's many lists. There's uh, uh, fiction lists. Uh, there is a uh, nonfiction list, there's children list, there's monthly lists. And by the way, when people say I've got a best-selling book, there's a thousand lists out there. We are in the Wall Street I, Journal, I USA Today, all of that stuff. It's funny, I, I was looking at uh, somebody's bio the other day. I, yeah. I had set up a call with somebody um, and I was looking at their bio and it said bestseller, you know. And, and when I finally got underneath it, it literally was nothing. Yeah. It was they, one day on Amazon, they had hit the top 10 of the, their category, yeah. which and, is like six degrees lower. And by the way, lower. you could be in a subcategory of atomic physics, as exactly. part of physics, and you were number three on yeah. atomic yeah. physics. Yeah. Within, and that, that, so I think what's important is we spend a lot of time and have both of us have spent a lot of time sweating yeah. this idea of 
our bestseller lists. Yeah. And I would it's argue- It's very ego-driven. Yeah. And the question is, does it matter? I mean, at the end of the day, one of the realizations I had a while ago was <laughs> I'm never going to put on the book number two New York Times bestseller, right? You're either on the bestseller list or you're number one. But you even just said it right now. You didn't even say New York Times. You just right. said bestseller list. Yeah. So for the, I really think the answer is if you don't hit number one, none of it matters. Right. Because you will always be able to say bestseller with yeah. some moderate degree of integrity because you're not putting a pre predecessor. You're not saying Wall Street Journal bestseller or USA Joe's Today. blog yeah. bestseller, <laughs> right? You, you could probably say that you're a best-selling author no matter what. In and some subcategory. In some subcategory sub with yeah. some degree of integrity. Uh, and if you're not number one, then you probably doesn't matter. And then okay. just look at the amount, of, look at the net present value of the energy oh, that you crazy. and I put into being number one. Crazy. And the favors you and call And the money it. and yeah. the favors, yeah. et cetera. But, I just but, don't know but that it's for those who And the want, likelihood but is for those, like nothing. But for those who want to go for the gold ring, let me hit a, let me yeah. hit a few data points and please add to them. So um, if you want to hit number one, the number of pre-sales are probably in the 50 to 100,000 uh, in the first week. Yeah. To get somewhere on the list, the number is five to 10,000. You might be number 10 on the list. You might be on a secondary New York. And this is the New York Times, which is for some reason, the list everyone cares about. Well, let me also suggest that I have seen people get those numbers that you're talking about yes. and not make the list. Yeah. And the reason they don't is because it's, the New York Times finally has an arbitrary ability to say, I don't trust your numbers. Right. I think that you don't have the pedigree. I mean, there, let, there is no open that. algorithm Let's there. repeat that. It's editorial. It's not, it's subjective. Yeah. It's not objective. You can hit those numbers and not get in the list. And one of the things they also do it's there's if you look at the list and you see a double dagger next to a book it is uh, if you look at what that means it means that this book reached the number of sales but it was in a fashion that doesn't represent public interest it was some individual got tens of thousands pre-sold to their friends which is what you do to get on the list yeah no i think i think where by the way i'd let, i want to hear more about this double dagger yeah um where I think it is unethical, and I've seen, I've heard of people doing it. I've never, I don't know anybody directly who's done it, but people who are rich and buy 50,000 books and they send them to their warehouse. Yep. And you now they recognize that the way there's a very intricate process, which it's probably inside baseball, but if you go on the Amazon and you buy five books, yes, it counts as one. So Amazon reports a transaction of a book purchase. Yes. And so what was happening for a period of time is there were agencies that were created. Yeah, I remember them. I hired one. Yeah. And it would be um, your, like I had friends of mine who had companies that wanted to support. books. And they would buy 100 books or 500 books. And the agency would take the money, right. would buy the books individually. And ship them And then to ship them individual. to the employees of the company. Right. Which... You know, from that actually, I actually don't mind that yeah. because that feels a, a degree of integrity. There are a hundred people getting your book, right? Now they didn't individually buy it, their boss bought it, but they're getting your book. I'm talking about people would buy 50,000 books, go to that agency and have it shipped 
50,000 times to people who never got the book, right? So that's, I consider low integrity. Yeah. And that, a lot, there were some people that got caught doing that and some articles written about them. I mean, that, the challenge is that the only way you get to tens of thousands of sales in the first week is if you're, you know, President Clinton, or if you are a famous actor and it's on the shelf and people know you and they want that inside story. I, what I was about to How'd share- you do it? Yeah, what I was about to share, again, this was back in an era yeah. when what I cared about was the list, yeah. right? So when I was trying to make the list, I went out and found a partner uh, back in the day. You remember University of Phoenix? I do. Um, <clears throat> I was doing some it's consulting. Still yeah, sure. <laughs> it's um, doing well. I was doing some, some work with University of Phoenix. Yeah. And um, they really believed in the book, Who's Got Your Back? Because I was helping them design peer-to-peer -peer coaching groups. Young kids that at the university would be in small peer-to-peer -peer coaching groups as a part of the learning experience. Mm -hmm. And alumni that would be in peer-to-peer -peer coaching groups in some part of their career development. And so when Who's Got Your Back came out, they're like, that's an amazing book. We should get it for all of our students. And let's go on a book tour around the country. Yeah. And so I ended up raising $2 million with University of Phoenix to just support my book launch. Amazing. Right? And, right. It, and it got number one New York Times bestseller. It's, it's you know, non-traditional marketing and thinking. Yeah. Um, that's, that's fascinating. So, yeah, it's, so that, it, that's the point, which is yeah. book marketing yeah. isn't just your advance. It's not just your own money. It's partnerships. It Working is, with partnership. partnerships with outside I'll tell you what I did. What I did on Bold um, to drive it again to number two, and, and both for Abundance and Bold, it was some uh, sequel to a fiction book. You know, sort of like a, I think it was Fifty Shades of Grey was like hitting number one. Oh, I thought you were I, like Bold was like Fifty <laughs> no, Shades no, of Grey. No. I'm like, I got to go back and reread that. No, I don't no, like, remember no. that in no, the book. It was like the follow-on to Fifty Shades of Grey that was number one. It was like no way I was gonna. Beat it. I mean, I don't care how many I, I sold. Um, but what I did with Bold was I did something unique um, and interesting. Uh, I went out to my community and I had built a community through Singularity University and through XPRIZE. And I said, I'm going to create a program. Uh, it, was a, it was called the Vanguard program. And I said, I'm looking for 200 members of my community uh, who are going to uh, go out and, and sell 100 copies of the book. Mm. Yeah, and, that's great. And if you do that, I think Gary Vaynerchuk did something that like that recently. It was a big deal. If you do that, I will give you an invitation to, to come and join me and Ray Kurzweil for a day mm. to talk about exponential technologies at Singularity University, either by you know by remote viewing or in person. And uh, it worked great. And so I had a small army yeah. of people who care deeply about exponential tech and and entrepreneurship who went into this. So that was a, a interesting thing to do. Yeah, I want to pause on that because yeah. I feel like that philosophy, which is, I think if you are really going to go big on a book, you need to think of yourself as a movement leader. Yes. And, and if you think of yourself um, as, again, this is the difference between you doing it all yourself and a movement leader, movement leaders realize, there they go, I must follow them for I am their leader. That is the Gandhi <laughs> phrase, right? You need to marshal volunteers. Yeah. And as a movement leader, I start to marshal volunteers in the writing process. Mm -hmm. I go out to people who care about what I care about because they've been following me and I ask for 
case studies, examples. I ask for volunteers for people who are curious about a topic that they would go spend a month doing research on the side for and deliver it to me. Yeah. So I, I get people involved. It, 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 that's what happened in EXO 2.0. Uh, Salim had built OpenEXO as a large community of thousands of entrepreneurs, and they contributed ideas, they reviewed chapters, yeah. and then they were there to promote the book. And we did, when we, the day we launched the book, we did a five-hour uh, free global webinar, right? Teaching everything that was in the book and then offered the book at 99 cents on Amazon for the digital copy for two weeks, really for, for those yeah. individuals. Um, you know, it really is about getting creative these days and you have to care about the book content because you're going to spend a lot of energy. It's, it's not a financial transaction. No. It's something that represents your heart and your soul. Um, let's talk a little bit about a lifetime of book writing. You and I have done that now. You know, yeah. we both started and we keep going. <clears throat> um, I have a, I have a, a, you seem to have these short agile sprints of writing book. A book might take you a year or two to, to be done. I have a long tail perspective. I've been writing one book now for 10 years and need some me, help. <laughs> <laughs> I have had help. I've had lots of help, but it's a very, it's a pivotal um, uh, book for me. And I'm not worried about publishing it right away because sure. to me, it's about the learning and I keep rewriting it and I keep reworking it and I'm not ready to let it go into the world yet. But it's it's a it's a beautiful ongoing learning path that I've had with two writing partners. Mm. Yeah. And so I just want people to think a little differently about it. And the other thing I want you to think about is the pivots. So when I was when I wrote Never Eat Alone, it was serendipitous. You here's an there was an article about how you had your career be so successful. Would you write a book about how other people can be successful? Sure. Never Eat Alone about networking relationships. Great. But that's not what I wanted my brand to be. Right. All of a sudden I had this amazing success of a brand around networking that I was um, I was actually pushing away from hmm. because in my head, you know, my friends were Peter Diamandis, who was a thoughtful scientist changing the world. My friends were my CEO friends who were changing major corporations. I didn't want to be the networking guy. Yeah. And and so. I never captured the momentum of never I, eat alone. I, I feel I feel that you you had a trajectory that if you held on to that could have been game changing. Yeah, it, it's well in different it, ways. I mean, I would yeah. have it would have been different. I mean, this was back at a day pre Tim Ferriss. Yeah, this was a day yeah, pre you could have been you could have been the ultimate podcaster from from day one. All of those. Things. I, I, had I chose let, not to. I had to let go of space, which I had spent. 20, 25 years developing all the mm -hmm. relationships, building companies there. Yeah. When I switched over to exponential tech and, and, and uh, sort of abundance thinking. And it's really about constantly reinventing yourself, right? Right. Which is a fun thing to do. Yeah. And that's what I've done with my books. Yeah. So if you look at my books, they've, and it's interesting because I may now come back around to that self help space. Mm -hmm. It's a space that I abandoned at a time when my sense of self and ego and other things didn't want to be all in. I didn't want that to be my brand. I wanted to be respected by presidents and and CEOs and thought leaders. And you are. And, you and ironically, I am. And they still respect me for the networking thing. Yes. I mean, I've helped presidents build their networks during campaigns. 
And it's ironic that people want to keep pulling me back into that core. And, uh, and, and I had fought it for a while. Hey everybody, this is Peter. A quick break from the episode. You know, I'm a firm believer that science and technology and how entrepreneurs can change the world is the only real news out there worth consuming. I don't watch the crisis news network I call CNN or Fox and hear every devastating piece of news on the planet. I spend my time training my neural net the way I see the world by looking at the incredible breakthroughs in science and technology, how entrepreneurs are solving the world's grand challenges, what the breakthroughs are in longevity, how exponential technologies are transforming our world. So twice a week, I put out a blog. One blog is looking at the future of longevity, age reversal, biotech, increasing your health span. The other blog looks at exponential technologies, AI, 3D printing, synthetic biology, AR, VR, blockchain. These technologies are transforming what you as an entrepreneur can do. If this is the kind of news you want to learn about and shape your neural nets with, go to demandis.com backslash blog and learn more. Now back to the episode. Yeah. So you're going to get to a point, your book is published, you get the galleys, you get, um, you're going to go out there and look for book blurbs. Hmm. Yeah. Right. So what's a book blurb? A book blurb is uh, getting someone on the back of the cover who has some notoriety to say, this is a great book, buy it. Right. Which probably the author has written and handed to the blurber. And it, it is 100% what happens, right? I mean, yes, <laughs> yes. It's like it's like you don't actually send them the full book and say, can you read it and send me, give me two I, sentences. People do. They do. And nobody does. And nobody. So when someone asks me for a book blurb, um, you know, if I know the person, yeah. I, I will do it. I will still ask for a summary of the book because I'm not going to have a time to really just slot yeah, it in and read it. And you just want to make sure it's not the, weirdly. And what's its purpose? You know, and then, and and then how does it in. connect to me? Right. And then I will say, then write me three or four draft blurbs and I'll and I'll modify one. Right. You know, um, are you abundant with your blurbing of other people's books? Because I know some people, I'm I can say their names, I am, but they are very stingy with it. I and then am there are others who are very in the it. middle someplace. I have been careful not to just accept everybody, but there are those people who I know through Singularity or mm -hmm. XPRIZE who I respect, um, but I'm not, I'm not that stingy with it. Yeah. But uh, I, get, I probably get 100 requests a year, and I'll probably accommodate 20... My, my view is I don't get the stinginess because it's not like any human will have seen the 10 things that you've blur, blurbed. Yeah, I just want to make sure it's, it's authentic for me. Yeah, yeah. Right? Authenticity in that regard. So you get the book blurbs, um, you get your book jacket, you get your final hard copy, and you're going to have a launch event of some type, which used to be in person. My first abundance launch event was... Uh, Steve Forbes threw me a party and Ariane Huffington threw me a party. And that yeah, was Ari, fun. Ari has the best book launches. She threw me mine too, right? And uh, and then you're on a press tour. now. Which, by the way, first of all, I think a book launch party is is useless. It, it doesn't. It doesn't it's do just, anything other than makes you, you feel, makes you it's feel like good. It's like a birthday. Yeah, it's like a birthday. It's like, party. hey, listen, do I have a party or do we not have a party this year? Yeah. Well, I'll have a like, party. Okay, like, that's, as, like, that's as important don't, as Don't decision. spend any money. It's not going to drive anything. If you want to celebrate like a decade of work and your friends are there, have yeah. a party for yeah. that purpose. Right, right. Um, and then you start your media. You, you then start, you start your book marketing. Yes. And at it's that eyeballs. point, it's, it is eyeballs. It's getting on. NPR is probably the best thing you can get on. You know, and that changes. So 
when Never Eat Alone came out, I had a relationship that got me on the New York Times, on, on the Today Show. Mm. And at that time, not Today Show? Yeah, Today Show, the morning TV show, right. Today Show made number one. Mm -hmm. That was it. And today, and it's Oprah will make you a number one. Does it anymore? Uh, well, maybe it used to. I mean, like, I mean, does she even have a book, book club, club anymore? I, I don't. I don't. We don't know. We got to be careful. Don't, we don't, don't say that. I don't watch Oprah. I'm not so. sure. Well, she's, I don't think she has a show anymore, Peter. Oh come on, she's had. Does to. she? Oh, well, we'll find out. Anyway, I don't know. anyway, re regardless. But you're the PR. You know, but but the I I think the look. What are the categories? This is any media person. There's um, there's the newspapers which do do reviews, and I don't think they matter as much anymore, except for New York Times doing a review is a big deal still, yeah. I think. Um, you've got the morning shows, you've got radio, which still has impact. Yep. Um, uh, Bob uh, Pittman keeps reminding me who owns iHeartMedia, <laughs> how important radio is, and I really think it is. But I think the biggest issue are podcasters. Yeah, You know, so it is, today it's going on a podcast tour. Yeah. It's really speaking about your book, and you know, people are like, I don't want to give it away. Bullshit. Oh, what do you mean? I mean, you want to talk about it as everything. much as, as give everything away. Yeah. And then a lot of people will buy the book just to have it on their shelf so they can refer back to it. Well, you know what portion of books that are bought or read? Oh, God. What, what, do it's you have a number? Than 10%. What? Less than 10%. Wow. I mean, the reality is you're anyway i'm not yeah. even going to go there i was so, about to be we're about to take this whole reason for watching this podcast <laughs> and flush it down the toilet because no one fucking reads it oh anymore God. well that's the big question it's like what's next for You'll, books well i'll tell you what's next and we did this with exo 2.0 we basically trained a gpt4 model on the book mm, and all the research it? and it's you're talking to the query is the that book. the thing i was talking to peter bot that's a different version. Um, and Peter Bott is trained on all of my books. Yeah. And you can ask it concrete questions like, you know, how do I develop an abundance mindset or an exponential mindset, whatever it might be, or how do I, I'm in a cement business in, in uh, Sao Paulo. Uh, how do I turn myself into an exponential organization? And the book will give you context and a, yeah. and a, and a reason. Look, your books, I hope my books, um, deserve to be read beginning to end from people who really believe in what we're writing about. If somebody wants to, I'm about to write the most important consummate book today of high-performing teams. Mm -hmm. The last team's book was 20 years ago. Wow, things have which changed. Was, which was uh, Pat Lencioni's Five Dysfunctions of a Team, which everybody still refers to. Yes. But think about what's changed in 20 years. So my book that we're about to publish is going to be very meaningful and important in the world. Um, most books don't have that gravitas about yeah. them. And you know, you need to ask yourself again, do you, you know, what are you writing for? Sure. I'll tell you one thing that I've done recently is as I'm writing a book, I will release chapters or portions of chapters as, as blogs. Right. And I Test ask them and I ask for feedback. Yeah. And I develop an audience on that way, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian and wrote like my favorite book of the decade, uh, Hail Mary, uh, both fiction books, what had came out of no place. And he wrote his book, The Martian, and released it as chapters yeah. on the internet for, for feedback. And, and then, people get afraid yeah. that if they do that, they're giving it away yeah. and, and no one's gonna buy the book. It just doesn't work that, that way. No, abundance it works yeah. in this regard. So. Uh, give the information away, get the feedback, develop people who want the next chapter in that regards. And I think that's 
really uh, you know Im- important. So what do we have to say in summary? Which feels well, like we're getting there. Yeah, let's wrap this up. Um, you know, uh, I'll, one last thing: Do you read your own books on Audible? Oh, great question. Yeah, and so when Abundance came out, and they chose the uh, the reader, and I listened to it, it was like I was horrified. I was like, oh my god, I could not listen to this person for a chapter. You'd rather Peter Bot read it. Oh my god! So I ended up reading uh, with Stephen, Red Bold, and Future is Faster. Do you like the process? Uh, I I do. I enjoy reading it um, because I can put the inflection into it. It takes, you know, a day and a half, two days to read a book. Yeah, uh, I hate it. I know. Well, the thing that's interesting is you don't have to actually read it perfectly. You can but like you have to read you, it you, three you, times. You read a sentence and then you fubbed it and you read it again. Ugh. I mean, I'm getting, I'm, my skin is crawling well, thinking about it. So, so the answer is I've not read any of mine. Okay. Well, I'll tell you, uh, we just trained up my voice model on 11 labs and it feels really good. And I'm but sure. Not, without, with, not with the inflection. But though. not with the meaning, right, of the personal story that goes like, oh my God, you know, when you really, when you convey it in that regard, but it will get there. Yeah. But but in the meantime, here's what I say to reading your book. Um, I think it's a beautifully generous gift to give your readers that I've never given them. (laughs) (laughs) Because when I've tried, it drove me crazy. I sat, I I said, okay, you know what? This next book, I'm going to do it. And I sat there and I started practicing and I realized I have three days of this ahead of me. <laughs> and I said, no. no but what I did way. do is I interviewed the, the readers. Yeah. So I got my publisher to give me three potential readers. Yeah. And I listened to all of them. And I found one that I thought was good. And then I had a meeting with them. Interesting. I said, listen, let me explain to you. I'm going with you instead of myself. I'd like you to understand why this book's important to me. I love that. I want you to understand. And I want to talk to you about some of the stories. I want to tell you. I'm going to tell you with the inflection point yeah. that matters to me. I coached them. Yes, nice. And, you know, I, I think it got better as a result of that. But I agree I should be a more generous, better human uh-huh. and let and read him myself. Well, I'll tell you something that is interesting that David Sinclair, when he wrote Lifespan, and he had a, he had a, a, a co uh, a co-author on that in between the chapters not all chapters but in the between the chapters when on the audible there was a conversation between david and the author about the chapter about the content of the chapter like has how that's that was amazing and how fast it's changed and that gave a level of intimacy so at a minimum if someone else is reading your book yeah um getting into an audio and recording having a conversation with that person yeah. about the chapter. I, I thought about that. So uh, we, of course, when I'm working with my co-writers, um, I had a co-writer that I did two books with. His name is Noel Weirich, amazing co-writer. He was, yeah. he was great. Um, he and I would get into some really like knock down, drag out fights. <laughs> like he'd be like, you know, that doesn't make any sense. I'm a book writer. I know what this is. I was like, but that, but you've turned it into mush and like we're yelling at each other. And I would sometimes just laugh. And I said, we've got to publish this as a part of the book, right? You know, the, all the soup that, you know, the, the ingredients that go into the soup that makes it. I think we will, by the way, see books that are written in this multimedia fashion mm-hmm. where the making of the book is all recorded. 
the, the the filmed even perhaps when when they when they're together on Zoom talking about it. Imagine the richness of that. Sure, you've got the book, and then you've got all the stuff that went into it. I mean, it would be powerful. So, ladies and gentlemen, our Where next book writers here: um, Keith Ferrazzi, author of Never Eat Alone, Who's Got Your Back, Leading Without Authority, Competing in the New World of Work. Keith, um, which social media platform are you mostly active on these days? I'd say LinkedIn. LinkedIn. LinkedIn is the right place. And you're, and you're, uh, uh, it's at Keith Ferrazzi at LinkedIn? Yeah, at Keith Ferrazzi. Fantastic. But wait, before we, we can't just close. We can't? Why? We've got to say something poignant at okay. the end. Okay, I thought we, I thought we did. I don't know. We were just, no. No? Okay, we, okay. We, well, we, on, bring, we had an hour worth of poignance. Bring, bring, bring it in then. So dude. like both of us should give a reflective comment about okay. the wrapper of the book. All right. So okay. uh, you, you want to do for, yours you go, or me? No, no, you go first. Okay, I, that's fair. Um, don't think of a book as this crazy Mount Everest thing that only special people do. Mm -hmm. Think of a book as your heartfelt ability to sit and be contemplative about what really matters to you, who you are, what do you want to project to the world? And it doesn't have to be something that you're on deadline. It can be something that you you evolve, but it, it, it's a forcing mechanism, an accountability mechanism mm -hmm. to focus on your brand and what you have to say to the world. And then I would also recommend that you get a coach. Yeah. And that coach could be a co-writer or something. Yeah. So that you keep on and you work it through. And you get to and, the end. And you get to the end. Yeah. And you've got something for your legacy and the, at a minimum, your grandkids will love to see. Yeah. You know, um, that was, that was beautiful. That was beautiful. That was beautiful. I felt the okay. need to okay. do something okay. poignant. Okay. Your gave turn. birth to that. Uh, understanding why you're writing the book is really important, right? I think the why is is key. And I, I remember the difference between I'm going to write a book about space because I'm the space guy to, oh, my God, there's this incredible truth in the universe about technology making everything more abundant and where humanity was going. And I want everyone to know about it. And the level of emotional energy that drove that was night and day. So uh, hopefully uh, folks listening can find that, that book inside them that really has this, emo we're, emotional, we're emotional entities, right? You need that emotional drive. Um, I found the book writing process incredibly um, meaningful and creative and it's artistry. Uh, and, uh, you know, it can, it changed my life. Abundance as a book yeah. launched, launched me in a brand new direction, uh, as did Never Eat Alone, uh, for you. Uh, and at the end of the day, it's going to become easier to write a book, mm -hmm. right? Use the tools. I think we had mm -hmm. an interesting debate mm -hmm. and discussion mm -hmm. about using chat GPT, uh, use the tools, but make sure that if you're using chat GPT, um, that it isn't plain vanilla, that you're adding your own stories, that it is um, what is on the page there is meaningful to you. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, we're going to see a lot of books. And uh, people say, I'm going to write a book to make money. Well, guess what? Uh, that's not where you make your money. You make your money in the speaking business if that's what you want to do. And that's going to be the subject of our next podcast. We talked about you're on LinkedIn, at Keith Ferrazzi, uh, two R's, two Z's. And uh, 
Uh, what if they want to reach you for to, for have you speak or coach their executive team? Where do they go for that? The company is called Ferrazzi Greenlight. Okay. So go to Ferrazzi Greenlight and you can get in contact with us there. Awesome. Thank you, brother. This was fun. Always. Mm -hmm.